Hi, this is Drifting Cow Press and your host, Gabriel Thomas-Stevens. Tonight we have a special guest, uh, Dominic Orr, and we'll be exploring the stories behind tribal nomadic rugs, carpets, and textiles, weaving personal narratives with a storied history of objects, focusing specifically on uh, North Africa. So we have Dominic Orr, welcome. Thanks, Gabriel. Thanks for inviting me on your show. And uh, just a, a slight correction, we are going to be exploring nomadic rugs, textiles from Africa, not just Northern Africa. That's right. So Dominic, um, can you please tell me a little bit about where you were coming from, what were you doing before you began to study the MA, um, Poetics of Imagination? Well, um, a potted history. Um, I went to Dartington School um, about 50-odd years ago, and then I went off to study um, up in London, and I did a communications degree at Brunel University. Um, uh, the idea was to get into media, um, mm. and I ended up, um, with employment um, here in, in the southwest in film and radio and television. And that led me to um, to want to sort of explore further afield. Um, and after about 10 years working in the UK, I ended up living and working in China for a few years, mm. which was very exciting. Um, and I suddenly found that a mixture of my travels and um, one of the reasons I wanted to travel was so that I could go w walking in, in wild places, which is, um, some people call it trekking. Mm. It's a sort of um, a cheaper version of a holiday because a lot of the time everything you own is, is in a, a, a rucksack on your back. And, and I, f I can't afford to 
um, pay for these sorts of holidays that you see in the back of a Sunday supplement, which costs many thousands of pounds. So it's much cheaper just to get a job in the country, mm. for example, in China, if you're interested in the, in the Himalayas, or in um, Libya, if you're interested in the Sahara. And you can then set off um, as a sort of honoured guest. You've got the right visa. You've been invited to, to the country to actually work. And you, you sort of have a head start, really, because you can go off and explore without a guide, which is mm -hmm. quite an interesting way of doing it. You're, you're following your nose, and I think you're, f you're using your instincts more rather than just going where you're told to go. Yeah, and also working in the land gives you that relationship that you can't forge if you're necessarily following a travel book. That's right. In fact, um, I've got some literature here. And one of the uh, books I'm going to read from is from a lady called Wilhelmina Ness, who was actually the, the first female um, member of the Royal Geographical Society. And she crossed the Syrian desert um, in the very early part of the 20th century and was the first Western woman to, to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite, on one level, it's quite comical to to read her account because she obviously was used to traveling in style unlike m myself who sort of puts everything in a rucksack and knows where each tiny tube of whatever is she went in a sort of convoy of vehicles and had countless camels and handmaidens waiting on her every whim mm. whereas I had to know you know weeks in advance where I was going um, I think that's that's the difference of traveling on a budget. If you don't plan it very well, it can end up costing more than you can afford. Yeah. So what, what period, what, what, when was she um, born? What, what time period are we looking at? So she wrote this book um, in 1920. And it was at that time, just prior to that, uh, between the wars, really, that she, um, that she traveled. Um, and what's interesting is that I ended up with um, an article of clothing which she actually bought on this trip. So mm. not only am I reading her book that was written 100 years ago, but I, I sold one of the garments which she ended up collecting. She went to many, many continents around the world. Um, but this particular garment is what's known as a Syrian Abba. And if you were to lie it on the ground, it appears to be just a very large sort of two or three meters square piece of fabric. But this piece of fabric um, was, is actually made out of camel hair mm. and gold thread. And when you slip yourself over it, a bit like getting inside a tent or something, suddenly you find where the armholes are. You can stick your mm. arms either side and then your head pops out of the top and you're wearing this, this gown. In fact, it had a special inner gown as well because camel hair is actually quite coarse. It's a little bit... Like yeah, I imagine it's quite itchy. That's right. It's a little bit like wearing a sort of hessian sack. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting. When you're selling these strange textiles, carpets, rugs, they all have a story. They've all traveled. Some of them that I sell are many hundreds of years old. And it's interesting to try and go back a little bit like reversing time going right back and trying to imagine how that article has survived because many of these things weren't made to sell. They were made to use. They mm. were made because they were commissioned, what we call bespoke. This was in a time before shops and this is in a time where people actually often make things from what they have around them. So they don't go to a shop and buy something. They actually see what resources they have around and then they use those. Mm. So the um, the camel hair and gold threaded coat jacket, what would that have been used for? What was the occasion that was made for? That's used as a ceremonial thing. It's not worn every day. It was probably given to this lady as some sort of diplomatic gift because mm. she, when she arrived in town, wherever she was traveling, there was been quite a kerfuffle and she would have probably stayed at the best house or been addressed by the most important people. Um, I guess it harks back to what we would have imagined in the Middle Ages, where people are often 
showing tribute because they're trying to gain, gain a favour. Mm. Um, obviously, things have, have changed now. Unfortunately, when I travelled more recently, I don't often get given gifts at every corner. But yeah. um, I can imagine she she was probably treated a bit like a sort of royalty, really. Yeah, that's the, that's what it sounds like. Mm. So there's, this is a passage that has she that she has written, or that's right. So in this book. Um, which is called 10,000 Miles in Two Continents. Wow, it's um, a big blue tome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, she actually describes arriving in Damascus, um, which is the capital of Syria, and uh, she says, Through these narrow streets strode camels and donkeys so laden that there was little of them to be seen pushing their way through crowds of men in semi-transparent woolen abbas, brown or black with gold embroidery at the neck, and women heavily cloaked and veiled. But the greatest charm of all was when darkness had laid its spell over the town and the desert. In the cool of nighttime, we motored through empty streets, past lighted open cafes where Arabs sat and smoked, the stillness broken only by the high slurring singing of the East or the rasping sound of a gramophone. Mm. She then goes on to actually talk about being in the middle of the desert. The actual desert crossing from um, Damascus to Baghdad, which is the capital of Iraq today, but in those days, this would have been Persia, was of nearly 500 miles just through the desert. Wow. So how, how many days would that have taken to... Many days, and um, they're, they're travelling literally from well to well. So where there's water, that's where they're travelling. In fact, recently um, we went on a trip to Tintagel, y- you mm. and I, yep. and I got chatting to one of your friends called um, Leon, <laughs> and he was telling me, he's from Australia, he was telling me that... Um, a lot of the trade routes in Australia going back hundreds of years were actually set up by the indigenous populations because mm. that's where the water wells were. And the, we were discussing whether or not those routes could have actually originally been just where the animals went because, of course, animals migrate and they travel obviously from spring to spring. From spring to spring. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, um, it's not too difficult to imagine that, uh, in fact, we are the last in the, in in the in a, a long line of travellers across the, the that are going from water to water planet that's going back many thousands of years. And um, I was explaining to, to mm. Leon that more recently, when I was in in Morocco, I got lost up in the Atlas Mountains. And when you're in that situation where you need to to find shelter or water, it's much easier just to look around you. Rather than wish you had a map or a compass, you can look around you, and if you use a sort of second sight, if if you're calm enough, you can actually see where the animals have gone, and mm. they can often lead you out of a, a a troubled situation. That's amazing, and I mean, all, um, most cities are always, you know, built around sources of water, and you can see that congregation that, yeah, that that, that there's a, there's forces such as water that lead, you know, or deepen the paths that people tread and walk human and the more than human that's right the more than human in fact last night i was reading david abram or abram abram yeah and he was talking about this this very Mm. thing about uh, so much now that we have in the west perhaps not so much with indigenous populations but post-industrialized societies don't look behind things they just look at the surface of things and Mm. in fact you if you looked at a tree and imagined what's underneath the bark, how much of that is actually water and how much its roots go into the ground. Yeah. You, you would have a completely different understanding of what um, being you're actually beholding. Beholding, yeah. That's right. I remember Alice Oswald talking about trees being almost like large tributaries of water. or seeing, You could see them as rivers. Um, and a lot of... A lot of um, the fabrics and the textiles, what when we're speaking on Thursday, it sounds like a lot of it is hidden and a lot of the beauty is unknown to the beholder. That's right, because those textiles, I mean, I've, I've got on the table here um, a Moroccan blanket, 
that's actually a camel blanket and it's what you would throw over the back of a camel before you would ride it mm. and this is made out of wool and it's been embroidered so it's been woven and then embroidered um, with tiny little geometric patterns and this is from the Atlas Mountains in North Africa wow. and it was actually bought by my wife long before I even met her and um, What's unusual about it is these designs are also tattooed on the faces of Berber people who actually use these blankets. So mm. a lot of the designs that we see on textiles, carpets, rugs, bags, uh, blankets, um, are universal signs. And they represent a different relationship with, with the cosmos that goes back to a pre-literate time for those people. Yeah, because I was I was reading an article on the fact that you know before literacy in the term in in terms of you know reading in a book we you know the literacy would be the tracks going into the forest or knowing the weather patterns and from from these patterns obviously like the the larger cosmos as you say is almost woven into the fabric it feels like that's right I mean a lot of the carpets and rugs that I sell um, I try to explain to people who perhaps don't understand the heritage of the design of these things and mm. when you look at a carpet it often has a border and if you actually study most carpets that are truly tribal i.e made by people f to use from their own animals rather than made commercially to uh, to actually sell in a sort of mechanical way mm. um, that border encloses a field what we call a field of designs and often if you if you study those designs within that border you can see that where the border comes down it cuts off some of those designs they're cut away that's because they're continuing behind that border wow that is just a window that you're seeing and in fact you're looking at the cosmos and a lot of carpet design that has a medallion in the center mm. that is the sun that is the center of our universe. So when, sorry, when you say it goes behind the border. It continues. It continues as in like the stitching continues? No, or? the design that you're The seeing, design continues. You can't see it continuing and it ends at that border. But if that border wasn't there, mm. and that then that carpet would be free to continue for, us for infinity. Right, so it's just the illusion that it That's finishes. Right. Basically, you're looking at a window that border is a window that you're looking through onto infinity. Mm. And that's what you're looking at. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's such a beautiful idea and image to, to behold. I remember reading the, um, a French philosopher saying that a book um, only pretends to end. And it's similar to a carpet, it seems. So on that note, we should play uh, one of the songs. Uh, this is from uh, the Sahara. And any of these songs you can Shazam, I'm sure, and find them in this journey.
So, to continue the conversation, uh, we have Dominic Orr, and we're looking at antique rugs, carpets. Um, and I was just asking Dominic, how how did you get into uh, this specialized area of collecting and, yeah, just traveling across the world? Well, going back to that last track, which is which is actually from the Sahara, and that was um, a track by Tin Tinwarian. Uh, they they are actually Tuareg um, tribes people, and um, a while ago I I was in Libya for a year, invited by Gaddafi, who was the supreme leader at that time. Mm. Um, so you say, you say you were invited? Wow! That's yeah, amazing. I was invited by Gaddafi, who wanted me there because um, I don't know if anyone listening can remember the Lockerbie disaster. But the Lockerbie disaster w happened over Scotland, over southwest Scotland. A plane was bombed and fell to the ground near the town of Lockerbie. And people, after an investigation, decided that Gaddafi was actually responsible. Mm. And um, he was the leader of Libya at that time. And there were many sanctions against Libya, and one of the results of that was that he decided to ban English to be <laughs> from being spoken in the country, and he burnt all the English books. So this was in the in the nineteen seventies. Move forward twenty five years, and he wanted to bring Libya back into the international fold. Well, if nobody in Libya can speak English, it's a big problem. If you've got tourism happening again, you want to greet people in the lingua franca. So I was invited to Libya to teach English, and I ended up in the south of the country, right at, right at the bottom of Libya, many, many hundreds of miles across the Sahara Desert from the Mediterranean Sea in a little area which is exactly where you will find Tuareg people. And by mm. coincidence, I ended up teaching a lot of the Tuareg people um, English, and they took me off into the sand dunes, and some <laughs> adventures were had. Mm. And yeah, I mean, this is this is it's it's funny. For many years, I've been interested in travel in foreign countries. I've lived in China. I've lived in Libya. I've traveled around South America. Um, and it's funny how you just can't seem to get away from these things. And when you when you meet lots of different people and you see how they live in adversity, often miles away from commercial centers mm. you you can see that they've actually lived in that way basically in tune with nature because that's the sensible way to live as we're beginning to learn now yes um, beginning to remember they've been living <laughs> that way for many thousands of years so that's one of the reasons why i i've become attracted to what i call tribal art which is in in the case of this program we're talking about textiles but i actually deal in lots of different types of tribal art and I feel they have a certain authenticity. Mm. Um, and it's something that um, I think a, a lot of what we look at as art now, sort of post people like Andy Warhol, um, have we've sort of lost an understanding of what authenticity is in the sort mm. of postmodern culture. Yeah, and you have, I mean, the classic example of the genuine or that overuse of, yeah, authentic. It's almost become impossible to discern authentic in a sea of authentic items but um in your collection uh, do you are you ever looking for specific items or is it very eclectic or do you, do you have a sort of flavor profile that you look for 
Um, I have a problem is that I find it very difficult to sell things I don't like. Yeah, uh, and, and I admire people who can sit in a shop sometimes for most of their lives and sell things that they personally have no aesthetic connection to. Mm. I don't understand that. But, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a good problem to have. But uh, and I've been lucky that I can find a lot of people out there who also have the same taste as me, because obviously if if I didn't, then I'd be starving, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what does that taste include, or is it you could you could you pinpoint it? Is there something that you know is specifically within your taste, or is it is it very eclectic? Yeah, I guess um, my mother, when I was a very small child in Totnes, my mother had a clothes shop, mm. and she used to dress me up in all these sort of what we call today um, retro, but in those days it was more vintage clothing. Mm-hmm. And she this was in the early seventies. She used to make fashions out of old things and then she tie-dye sort of old men's long long johns and um, just create fashions and in, in the 70s that was a, a that was happening right across I think they called it punk or new wave mm-hmm. um, and that was the first time that I actually had a feeling about textiles because that you know they were rubbing up and down against my skin you know yeah. woolen garments that were made to to measure hand-woven items, not machine-woven, hand-woven items. And it's not a coincidence that 50 years later, that is what I'm selling, hand-woven mm. things, things which, okay, they're woven on a loom, but they're not, they're not mechanically woven. The actual machine is a human being ra- rather than an engine or electricity or, or something like that. And so all that, all that energy and all that, the imperfections can cr- you come in and... There's a, there's a um, phrase that David White uses, the conversational reality of things and that, like the fabrics rubbing up and, you know, when you build a relationship with an item, a rapport, it's such a beautiful thing that you, I think you can get to a certain extent with manufactured ob- objects, but it's in no league or parallel to handmade woven garments. When you think that, um, for example, what, just before we, we started this show, I showed you a skirt mm. that's worn by a man that must be 10, 10 meters long. But when it's worn by a man in, in Africa, in the Congo, in fact, in the tropical rainforest, mm. um, it's pleated and folded up and then flipped over. And it looks p- pretty much like a sort of tutu, like a sort of um, a jive skirt. And that's exactly what it's supposed to look like because it's, it's for dancing. It's a mm. ceremonial skirt that men who are basically in attendance to a king are actually dancing. It's that old image of, you know, native people dancing in grass skirts. This yeah. is actually made from from palm fibre, and it's handwoven, and it's a it's an actual statement of office. It actually shows that you have some authority. Mm. So this is a different relationship, a little bit like you can tell who's the captain of a of a ship or a plane because he's got a braided a braided thing on yeah. his shoulder much the same language but I think we're losing this language because if you lose an understanding about how things are made mm-hmm. and what materials are made out of in a way you're losing touch with nature mm. yeah because that that piece you showed me with the it's got that sort of like honeycomb pattern and just the I'm not even sure if that's the right word but the extravagance it's it's the you know the the care and attention to detail and that the fact I actually asked, "What well, is that? Is that for a woman?" And you immediately said, "It's for a man." And I thought, you know, it's it's amazing that you know, as men as well, we've lost that sort of like flamboyant, you know, dress code that gives that, you know, often the in you talked about nature and it's the male that has the most colourful plumage, and um, we are also losing that aspect, I think, in our culture where we're dulling it down to suits and greys, blacks, browns, becoming anonymous, really. Anonymous, yeah, anonymity, yeah. That's, that's right. That's a good way I of mean, putting it. Going back to the Sahara, um, the Tuareg people, you can tell a Tuareg, um, who are basically black Africans, a bit like sub-Saharan Africans, mm. from maybe a kilometre away, mm. as opposed to an Arab. Now, a- Arabs came across from the Middle East and came across into North Africa and then down into Africa and conquered and they ride the camels differently. So you can actually tell from the, the way they ride From where it. they're on the camel, you can tell who's Arab and who's 
Tuareg. And That's the, amazing. The Tuareg species. are the original. Um, mm. what we, they, were, they were the original rulers of those passages through, through the Sahara, going right back to, to the Romans, where gold and, and animal furs and ivory was, was traded up to North Africa. Um, mm. And yeah, they ride um, on top of the camel, and Arabs ride behind the, the camel. And a, tu a Tuareg man has his face covered, whereas an Arab man doesn't have his face covered. That's amazing. That's so you can precision. see from a kilometer away yeah. who they are. And a lot of the weavings that I um, sell, the antique weavings, especially camel-related ones, because a lot of them are, are made either by by camel hair, or they're made for camels. A lot of them are, are designed to hang over a camel um, when that camel is either carrying goods or at weddings, for example, when camels are used um, for celebration. And the designs are woven on them to be seen from a long way away, right. from the side of a camel. And they are a code to actually tell you that these people are part of your clan. They're not going to come into your village, rob you, take everything away. They're friends, they're relations. And that is that is what these things mm. are for. They're not just things to walk on. They're not just things to keep warm, but they're actually a communication tool. A tool. I mean, if you look at ma um, flags as well, that, that, that same principle applies, that you have to be able to see a know flag from a thumb you know on a thumbnail size so that you know very far away that this is you know this is the territory this is the and that specificity is amazing i think and we are yeah as you said we're losing that one thing that came to mind is also the um the interesting thing that is happening with wealth now you know we have like these skyscrapers and um you know if you're rich you hide that with you know you wear a suit there's an anonymity that you talked about um but that sort of like open um, show of, of wealth and you, you know who the king is you know who uh, you know the hierarchy that exists yeah. and it's about honoring as well and honor yeah, yeah. it's about pe people actually celebrating rather than being confused really and not really knowing who they are anymore you know where they're from yeah that sort of homogenized landscape mm -hmm. that is beginning to creep in well so we'll start um, with you mentioned it's so Hamza El Din is the the next artist we'll be playing, and you, and can you remind me of the name of these people? So Hamza is one of the the greatest exponents of the oud or the oud, yeah. which is basically like a lute, and it's the classic Persian, if you like, um, instrument. Um, he is actually a Nubian, so he's Nubian. actually not really Persian. He's actually from the deep interior of Africa, mm. where the Nile comes down to Egypt. And I guess his ancestors were the ancestors of, 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 of the pharaohs, really. And he ended up coming over to the West um, in the middle of the 20th century and teaching Oud to many people in, uh, in America. So he's quite an unusual character. Mm. Well, hopefully we can hear some of the landscape through his music. Yeah.
show we were um, referring to a blue tome by uh, Miss Patrick, Mrs. Patrick Ness and uh, we were talking about her journey through the uh, Syrian desert and we were just going to continue the second leg of that journey. Yeah thanks Gabriel yeah um, what's unusual is that um, she goes on to explain how she coped with the desert. Um, so she, she, she leaves Damascus and starts traveling overland ac across the desert for four or five hundred miles, in fact, um, until she gets to Baghdad. Um, and I'll just read a little bit. Cold gave place to extreme heat till our eyes were red and sore with the hot air and dust. But we did not halt till noon, when we climbed out over the wings for light refreshments, the wings of the car they were travelling in. The leader of our expedition, cheerful and smiling, asked if I would like a drink, at the same time handing me a short length of rubber tubing. Seeing my mystification, he explained that I could put the tube in my mouth and it was attached to the drinking tank, and I could then suck. But, preferring boiled water from my own camp water bottle, I politely but firmly refused. 
altogether comfortable it could not be called, for at times we were thrown so high in the car that our heads hit the stays of the hood with a resounding crash. Mm. So she's she's travelling across inhospitable landscape and um, she ends up in in um, Baghdad and um, this has got a resonance for me because many years ago I was actually a student at Dartington Hall School in the 1970s and two of my my friends there who were also at the school came from um, Iran they mm. were young men identical twins actually Nada and Nasser and they told me that their father was actually a rug dealer in the 1970s um, who was living in Germany and they told me a story that you could blindfold their father and hand him a, an oriental rug and he couldn't see it but he was using his hands as his eyes and with those hands he could tell you pretty much how old the carpet was where it was woven possibly what color it was and even possibly the village where it was woven and at the time i wasn't actually that interested in um antiques or tribal artifacts and their stories and i thought this was one of those sort of fairy stories mm. but in fact now 50 years later um i begin to realize that we have lost a lot of the abilities that we used to have and in fact What's sad is those boys went back to their homeland and pr probably died in the I I Iran I Iraq War, where m millions of men died in the late eighties. Um, and yes, yes, it was one of those first stories about something that at the time I had n no great interest in, but now mm. it's my my bread and butter, if if you like. And amazing to see that thread. Uh, linked to Dartington as well, yeah. this, this pool of of information and and encounters. Um, so, what what made you change, or I guess made you believe that this could be, you know, with your, the fingertips and without sight, that you could uh, explore and find the intricacies of a rug and find the particular region and place. It's. Yeah, it's a very strange question. A lot of people come to my exhibitions. I, I hire galleries all, all over the UK and I, I put on a collection, maybe 100 or 200 artefacts, and I hang them on the wall. Mm. And the idea is that people can go up and actually touch them. There's a catalogue so that people can look on the rug. There's a little ticket with a number. They can look in the catalogue and see where that came from, when it was made, why it was made, you know, its use. Um who made it, and the technique of weaving. And if they're interested, they can actually delve right in, not just physically, but so almost metaphysically, mm. into times which unfortunately have gone now. Um, a lot of these people were nomads, and they, they needed common land for their animals because these rugs were made out of the imagination of these people. There was no formal training there was no cartoon for the designs it's all in their heads it's mm. an oral thing and um those carpets um they they represent so much more than what we see in the in the west as being something that you put on the floor you know so that the fact that there's no formal training no academy to go at is kind of reminds me of you know alchemy before science where you know you have people experimenting creating from you know, pulling threads from their own imagination. So is there, is there a lot of variety in every, you know, is, or is there, um, can you almost see over time that there's there's patterns emerging or like a, a canon of, of certain types of rug or is it so, so widespread, so infinite? Well, each country has its own tradition. So our weaving tradition in this country, our carpet making tradition actually comes from France. Mm. And the French came over, um, three, four hundred years ago and taught us how to how to weave. Um, Turkish rugs um, are one cradle of the civilization and they they can be spotted by people like myself from a long way away because they have a certain color palette. So the the green of a Turkish rug will be mm. very different from the green of a Persian rug, from you know, a rug from Iran, for example. Mm. Mm -hmm. A Turkish green is, is very like an olive. 
it's got a lot of blue in it, whereas the green from Persia is is more like an emerald. Mm, amazing. Yeah. So you can tell a lot about a carpet just by the palette, the distribution of colors. So the color, the color is almost reflects the where it, yeah where it comes from. That's right. All the natural colors come from the land. They come mm-hmm. from plants. They come from insects. They come from animals. And so, in a way, they're they're an echo of the geography, the flora and fauna that were used by those nomads using what they had around them. Wow! So the flora and fauna is almost imprinted in the in the rug. So color is one aspect. Is there other things that you look for that tell you for, that it's of a particular region? Is there the, how it's woven? Or? That's right. So um, there are certain carpets um, which are long and thin. And there are other carpets which are m- more square. And that, again, is is part of the personality of different countries. So, mm. um, for example, in Iran, what we what used to be called Persia, there is a, um, a nomadic tribe called the Afshar. And you can always tell an Afshar rug from its neighbors because the cousins of the Afshar weave very similar rugs from the same sorts of animals with the same sorts of palette, but Afshar rugs are much squarer. And so you can, again, like I was saying before, you, from a distance you can tell a, an Arab from a black African yeah. because of the way they ride a camel. You can tell an Afshar rug from, from their neighbors because the Afshar one will be much wider, almost as wide as it is long, whereas mm. their neighbors' rugs are, tend to be m- more that classical oblong Oblong-shaped, shape. yeah. Wow, that's yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And you also you also talk about um, how these objects, a lot of these objects, shouldn't have never been or were meant to be sold, um, and so they have, you know, they whether it be a prayer mat or, um, I mean, that that in itself is quite a fascinating history. Well, a young a there. young woman, because most of the time in pre-industrial um, times. The makers of these artifacts were young women. And in order for a young woman to escape um, the clutches of her family, where she would have been working as an adult, really, from very early age, going out, getting wood, tending the sheep and goats like a shepherdess, working, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, mm-hmm. probably not having what we would look upon as being schooling, in order to escape that, she would have to find a husband. And the way to find a husband is to weave articles for her dream house. Wow. So she would need a small carpet. She'd need a big carpet. She'd need her own little vanity bag, which is called um, a shante, in which she can keep all her personal belongings when she does get married. Um, And then that's when she moves into her new husband's tent. And that little bag is the only place in that tent where her husband's not allowed to put his hand. Mm, that's it's amazing. Her private little domain. So she'll weave all these articles, her wedding gown, she'll weave, yeah. and these all become part of her dowry because they're so beautifully woven and they've been woven over such a long period of time that they are absolutely exquisite. And, of course, you would never want to sell any of these things later on, but often when when you can't get what you need from your environment you mm. may have to compromise and sell something off in order to get medicine or something else that you need and that's how a lot of these classic pieces escape from right. from these families so would some of those rugs begin to be woven even before the woman has met the husband of course so she's really dreaming into her future Indeed. That, exactly that, is, that that is wonderful. and she's even weaving little um human figures on into the carpet and some of them will be in the field in the center of the carpet and some of them will be in the border and that is the inside and the outside that is her on the inside and him on the outside and that's the union that she's dreaming wow that's absolutely mind-boggling um okay so we'll play one last uh, song and we as we head into the end last sections of the show Thank you. 
Okay, so as we come to the last segment of the show, I can't help but um, feel the connection as you were talking about the dreaming of, and the creating of the rugs for a future self. Um, that the the idea of a storyteller is also a weaver, and you know that that's played out in so many uh, stories. You know the uh, the Odyssey and the women that are weaving. Um, and various texts, but you you're you're thinking of um, compiling uh, your information, the knowledge that you've collected over the years, um, and yeah, please please can you talk about that? Well, when we discussed the possibility of meeting here on on uh, on air, I told you a story about um, a carpet that I bought in Lhasa in in Tibet, and how it ended up becoming a wedding present for uh, a friend of mine who's son was marrying a Japanese girl. Mm -hmm. And on that carpet, from the capital of, of Tibet, uh, there were three main medallions, like flowers, if you like, down the center of this long, thin carpet, which was actually a meditation rug from a monastery in Tibet. And when I bought that 20-odd uh, years ago, um, I was visiting Tibet, um, and I couldn't work out how it had been squirreled out of a monastery. I doubt it was entirely um, <laughs> um, an honest trade, because those sorts of things normally are used, like a lot of tribal things, until they're just worn out, and then you would make another one. So f the fact that it was in any sort of condition at all was quite interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, that story about that carpet, which then went on to represent not only the two people getting married, but also the fact that they were going to have a child. There were three images on that carpet, and it seemed to represent to me the three spirits involved in that union, the unborn child and the two people <coughs> who were betrothing 
themselves to each other. Mm. And so, yeah, carpets, as you have rightly um, realized, Gabriel, do have a very w interesting um, connection with, with the land, with the people who make them. And in my case, they have a very interesting connection with the people who are buying them off me because they, those poor people have to listen to me rabbiting on about carpets for 10 or 15 minutes. They probably <laughs> just buy the carpet to shut me up uh, as an excuse so they can actually leave the exhibition. Uh, but the, the book I intend to write in some ways um, can be defined by the other books about carpets which I've read. Um, I've been given books and I've bought books about carpets for 20, 30, 40 years. And um, I've realized that there's so much missing from these books. Often mm. the books are basically just a series of photographs with a sort of very brief account of where they came from, perhaps a map. But they don't really go into the the sort of stories and dreams of the people who made them, because that's really what they are an articulation of. So the challenge for me um, in writing a book about tribal weavings is to really use those artifacts um, as a, a, a doorway or a window frame into not just the worlds they depict, mm. the animals, the the plants, the landscapes, but also into the minds of those people and into the minds of those people's ancestors. Because, I mean, at the moment, I have actually got a bag from South America um, that's a thousand years old. And that bag was made to hold coca leaf, which was then taken out of the bag, put in the mouth and chewed. Mm. And, and this was used in a sort of quasi- religious sort of way as part of a way of life, a lived way of life that enabled people to um, really honour and also um, find a true synthesis with their environment. Um, so, yeah, that's maybe what I want to write about in this book. Mm, beautiful. So the storied landscape and the stories behind the objects and bringing bring some light to to what lives and the lives that come before the object that's right yeah yeah beautiful I mean, just as human beings you know you and me we are a consequence of of many many generations going back yeah one of the th the things that i discovered on this course last year i'm on, on a two-year poetics of imagination was um i did a little a little experiment with the land and I was learning a little bit about cave paintings and the whole process of finding pigments in South Devon, in the Dartington area, picking them out of a stream, finding a rock surface, actually putting my hand on it and actually imagining in my mind an image and then turning the lights off and actually drawing that image. Mm. And in a way, I think that's what carpet weaving is. Mm. There isn't a cartoon, there isn't a book, there isn't instructions for real tribal weavings. They are literally made up from their, the imagination as they're doing it. That's beautiful. Wow. And, and young girls learn how to do it from their mother while they are still suckling on the breast of that weaver. It's uh, almost by osmosis. Mm. And just, yeah, to finish on that note, it's, it's, it's wonderful that uh, our ancestors can be found in the pigment that is actually beneath our feet and in the rocks and the landscape. Um, thank you, Dominic. Thank that was a... Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. A beautiful show, and uh, I'll see you guys next week for Monday, 5 till 6. Thanks for listening.